Good morning. Our scripture lesson uh, today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen, until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Transfiguration Sunday. The last Sunday of the season of Epiphany, a season that began for us this year on Sunday, January the 3rd. Actually, Epiphany Day is always January the 6th, after the 12 days of Christmas. And during this time, during the season of Epiphany, we've been looking at Mark's gospel, the lectionary gospel readings for this season this year, year B in the church here, listening to what Mark has to say. And on a couple of Sundays, John's gospel interjected or jumped in line, and we we heard from him as well. But our phrase for today, our theme for Transfiguration Sunday this year is don't just sit there, say something. And my intent is to question the wisdom of that saying by rearranging it just a bit. My version goes like this. Don't just say something. Sit there. So just sit there quietly. Silence can be awkward. Some folks describe a pregnant silence giving birth to something else. Or golden silence is golden as an old song says and Simon and Garfunkel sang about the sound of silence and why is it that silence sometimes seems to frighten us a little bit in a moment of silence a minute of silence in a worship service can seem to most of us like an eternity I'm not sure how the group known as the friends the Quakers I don't know how they do it the that long periods of silence for contemplation and for prayer. How do you not let your mind wander off in a thousand different directions and think about what's for lunch after church or other important topics? Silence can be difficult. So what does silence and Transfiguration Sunday have to do with one another? What's the connection? For many Christians, the church year revolves around two or three major pivot points, festivals, Christmas and Easter and the day of Pentecost, the the birth of the church. 
these would be major feast days, but there are lesser feast or festival days that we observe and celebrate. Ascension Day, 40 days after Easter, Epiphany, 12 days after Christmas, and then there is Trinity Sunday, the Sunday following Pentecost, and All Saints Day on November the 1st. And this Sunday, this Transfiguration Sunday, fits right in with those lesser festivals, but still important. Traditionally, this feast day was celebrated on August the 6th, and that's still the case, I believe, in many Roman Catholic churches and Episcopal churches. It marks the transition from Jesus' ministry in Galilee, his healing, his preaching, his teaching, all those things that we study and pray about and thinking about, from there to his sacrifice in Jerusalem. So it's also appropriately celebrated by other Protestant traditions like us United Methodists. It's the last Sunday before the beginning of Lent. We think of it as a bridge Sunday, connecting the Epiphany season, the ministry of Jesus, and the season of Lent, a time of sacrifice and, and introspection that begins on Ash Wednesday. The account of what happened on that Mount of Transfiguration is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's also referred to in the Epistle of Second Peter. For our purposes today, and hopefully learning from Mark's account of this incident, we'll be leaning on that and, and learning from it, I hope. And as we consider what happened on that Mount of Transfiguration and why, let's be attentive to the direct implication, and I believe it's there. I don't believe I'm exaggerating or forcing this point, at least I hope not. The connection between silence and being on that Mount of Transfiguration. The Transfiguration episode is said to follow the Caesarea Philippi instruction after six days. And you may recall what happened in Caesarea Philippi. And an interesting note, I think, about the name of that place is Caesarea, named, of course, after the Caesar, and Philippi after Herod Philip. And even someone with the ego of a Herod Philip would know better than to put his name before the Caesar's name, the ruler, the Roman Empire. So Caesarea Philippi, and what happened there... Matthew, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist or others and Elijah or one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them, don't tell anyone. The Christological emphases here having to do with who Jesus was and is, the Christological emphases of that conversation represented in the transfiguration story, Jesus as Messiah, as Christ is confirmed by the divine testimony. He is God's beloved son. The predicted glory of the coming of the Son of Man is anticipated. All the shiny garments bleached, as Greg read from the passage, brighter than any bleach. Any bleacher or fuller could bleach them on earth. That previous conversational episode concludes with the disciples being instructed to tell no one that Jesus was the Christ and to keep that until after the resurrection. Now the three disciples 
who were singled out to be there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, witnessed that manifestation of Jesus as the Son of God. They had just come from the healing of Jairus' daughter, where these three also were there. And they were the ones who were with Jesus, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane near the end of his life. Peter, James, and John, or as John Maxwell says, Pete, Jim, and John. They were always there. And there's another story there that we'll think about another time. You imagine there was any jealousy among the 12 that Peter, James, and John always seemed to get picked, always singled out to be there for all these life-changing events. And I can imagine the others just shaking their head and saying, well, there he goes again. Pete, Jim, and John, what are the rest of us, chopped liver? But anyway, that's, that's another story. Who was Jesus' inner circle? But the healing and the transfiguration suggest a manifestation of the divine power of Jesus and his glory. And this trio does not demonstrate exceptional fidelity. They were there for this unusual sight, but the way they responded makes you wonder if they were really, really getting it. Peter has already been blessed out, so to speak, for rejecting the necessity of suffering. Get behind me, Satan. You remember Jesus said to Peter, when Peter said, these things won't happen to you, Lord. And, and Jesus said, get behind me. He'd already blessed out Peter and James and John will soon show themselves to be more occupied with fame and fortune than they are with serving those who are in need in this world. All three will fail to watch with Jesus during his agony in the garden. Remember, they all fell asleep. Couldn't you watch with me for one hour? These failures become all the more striking with the divine voice who has instructed them, listen to the Son. Details of the transfiguration story bring to mind several Old Testament stories, even though no particular passage is directly quoted. This idea of the shining light and the bright garments make you think about heavenly beings, not earthly beings. The mountains, the cloud, the divine voice are all reminders of God's appearance in Exodus 24. And Peter's response to all of this. Let us make three dwellings or three booths, one for you, Lord, and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Seems a little bit confused, like Peter's missing something here. Moses and Elijah already dwell with God in heaven. They're here for this divine appearance, but they already have a home. Why would they need a booth or a, a shack or, or something on the mountaintop, a tent? Some scholars think that the detail refers to the festival of booths. You remember the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's a, another story for another day, the way God blessed the people on their journey through the wilderness, and they observe that festival to this day. The voice from heaven in our story is reminiscent of the divine voice at Jesus' baptism. Now God commands the disciples to obey the word of the Son, and this declaration makes it clear that Jesus is greater and more powerful than Moses or Elijah or any of those characters from the past, but also that Jesus must enter into his glory through suffering and death. The conversation during their descent from the mountain brings back the story of the necessity of suffering. This version of the command to remain silent limits the period of time to the before the resurrection, the three disciples unable to understand what 
Jesus is talking about. Like we don't always get it, do we? A reference here to the resurrection to come. Mark's early readers may have seen the transfiguration as evidence of the heavenly exaltation of Jesus, the kingdom of God coming and being implemented in this glorious way. And despite the turmoil of the world experienced by Christians in Mark's day and in every day since, they can recognize that Jesus is superior to his persecutors, that he's already controlling the world. So let's think for a little bit longer about this connection between transfiguration and silence. Don't just say something, sit there. And I believe there are at least three benefits to the silence that's referred to here, and I want us to to briefly take a look at each of those. The silence illuminated by our gospel lesson. And maybe examining those benefits will help us in our journey with our struggles. The first benefit from verses 5 and 6, then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three dwellings, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Not knowing what to say never kept Peter from saying something. And we know folk like that too. So the first benefit of silence is that it keeps us from saying something inappropriate. We've already talked about the foolishness of building a house for Moses and Elijah who already had a home in heaven. About 20 years ago, a colleague introduced me to a book called The Sayings of the Desert Fathers. She became somewhat aggravated when I teased with her and said, why do I need a book about the Desert Fathers? And it annoyed her even more when I asked her if there was a caramel cake recipe in this book by the Desert Fathers. But the sayings of the Desert Fathers, not the Desert Fathers, came primarily from the monastic movement in Egypt during the 4th and 5th century. And as one might expect, there are many, many sayings there, a lot about the wisdom, the power of silence. Now, thinking about silence as a safeguard against inappropriate remarks, listen, if you will, to uh, a little bit from the book. There is a monk known here as Anthony the Great, and I want to share with you just a few of his thoughts and you might want to explore the, the Desert Fathers. Maybe you've done that in some of your Sunday school classes, some fascinating things there. But anyway, some brothers were coming from Cetus to see Abba Anthony. And they were, when they were getting into a boat to go there, they found an old man who wanted to go there as well. The brothers did not know him. They sat in the boat, occupied by turns with their words of the Father, Scripture, and manual work, passing the time as the boat crossed the water. As for the old man, he just sat in the boat and remained silent. And when they arrived on shore, they found that the old man was going to the cell of Abba Anthony too. And when they reached the place, Anthony said to them, You found this old man a good companion for the journey? He was asking them. And then he said to the old man, You have brought many good brethren, Father, with you. And the old man said, No doubt they are good. But they do not have a door to their house. And anyone who wishes can enter the stable and loose the donkey. Except he didn't say donkey. He meant that the brethren said whatever came into their mouths. 
And I think the way we would say that nowadays is they had no filters. They just spoke. And it made me think about one of my dad's favorite sayings. And he had many favorite sayings. One of his was, better to remain silent and let folks think you are a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And he followed that up by always telling us that silence was the best substitute for brains. A neighbor friend of mine when I was growing up had the gift of gab like few people I've ever met. And another friend said of him when they said of this first friend, he talks the most, to say the least, of anybody I've ever met in my life. Silence, the best way to prevent inappropriate speech. If we're not sure, keep quiet. And the second benefit of silence comes from verse 7. Then a cloud overshadowed them. And from a cloud, from the cloud, a voice, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. So the second benefit of silence is it helps us to hear better. And maybe that really is why we have two ears and one mouth, to use that old expression. Thinking back to the gospel lesson and those who were privy to the transfiguration. Do you think Peter ever hushed up long enough to to hear much of anything? Helps us to hear better and to listen to God. Did Peter ever hear? Was he ever able to hear the sounds of silence? Once again, the desert fathers, Abba Theophilus, the archbishop came to see us one day. And the brethren who were assembled said to Abba Pambo, say something to the archbishop so that he might be edified. And the old man said to them, if he is not edified by my silence, he will not be edified by my words. I'm betting that the archbishop could understand the sound of silence. And how is it with us? Are we ever able to turn off the devices, to turn off the television and other things long enough to listen to the beloved one and speaking through the majesty of creation and the wonder of the written word and the caring touch of a friend or a loved one? Who can imagine all the ways that the beloved one, even the Christ, speaks to us? And can we ever stop talking or letting our minds run away from us long enough to listen. What we might hear might just be what matters most of all. From my favorite psalm, Psalm 46, these words, be still and know that I am God. A third benefit of silence illuminated by the gospel lesson from verse 9 as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So a third benefit of silence is that it guides us as we seek to live as living and loving followers of our Lord. Maybe the desert fathers can still weigh in on this one as well. Abba Isidore of Pelusia said, to live without speaking is better than to speak without living. For the former who lives rightly does good even by his silence, but the latter does no good even when he speaks. When words and life correspond to one another, they are the whole of philosophy. Better to not speak than to speak words that are contradicted by our actions. 
One of the brothers asked Abba Pullman, is it better to speak or to be silent? The old man said, the one who speaks for God's sake does well, but the one who is silent for God's sake also does well. And another brother asked Abba Sissos, what am I to do? He said to him, what you need is a great deal of silence and a great deal of humility. For it is written, blessed are those who wait for him, for thus they are able to stand. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. He's going to give you your marching orders as individuals and as God's church. Listen to him. So we'll know what we are to say and do. Now all of this is not to say we should never speak. Obviously not. Oftentimes our words can be encouraging and uplifting and hopeful. And somebody in our circle needs to hear those words or outside our circle. There are occasions when we need to put our hands and feet to the gospel so that we might be in ministry to and with the last and the lost and the least, as Kelly explained so well on the video. But before we go marching off in the wrong direction and choosing the wrong battles as individuals and as God's church, we need to learn to be still and to listen and to know at a very deep level what God would have us say and do. Oh, goodness, all the times we just react instead of being still and listening for a little while and then knowing what to do. There are those days when the old saying is right on the money, don't just sit there, say something, do something. But before we say and before we do, we need to listen again to the sound of silence. Let me conclude with these two verses from, from 1 Kings. Elijah's hiding in a cave. You remember Jezebel and her people are out to get him. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer Silence. Amen.